Thank you for joining the Relief from Grief podcast by Mrs. Miriam Ribiat and Chevra Lomde Mishnah. Our goal is to help you find the chizik you may need and the comfort of knowing that you are not alone. To sponsor an episode, visit chevralomdemishnah.org forward slash podcast and bring comfort to listeners like you. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me here today on the Relief from Grief podcast. Today's podcast is sponsored by Eli Nishmas of Shmuel Yaakov Ben Matis Yahoo. And if anyone is interested in sponsorship opportunities, you could check out the website, chevralomdemishnah.org. Okay, so today I'm very, very excited to introduce to you Rabbi Surly Freed. He is the regional director for High Lifeline. He works as a social worker. He has an MSW, and he's also the crisis director in the New Jersey area. So thank you so much for coming on. <laughs> I really, really appreciate it. I feel like I know your name from like years back, and I feel like everyone in Lakeland must know your name, but I don't know if that's just me because I don't know if my own story or what, but, but I'm really, really honored that you came on. And I guess I wanted to ask you, maybe we could start off with like, if you have any story or reason that made you go into, you know, to what you do. First of all, thank you for having me on. It's an opportunity to share some of my experiences that I've had in the last 22 years of working with children and families dealing with serious illness, trauma, and tragedy. I really don't speak, this is Ribiad on behalf of myself, rather, I always say, I speak the voice of hundreds and hundreds of families that I've dealt with and their experiences that I share. But it's truly an honor to be on because when you reached out to me to join this podcast, I did a little research and it's an inspiration to see someone that has been able to take personal tragedy and turn it into something of supporting others. That's something that's incredible and inspiring. And if I can have an opportunity to help you do your incredible work, it means a lot to me. So thank you for the opportunity. In terms of my involvement with High Lifeline and why I got involved, it's a good question. You mentioned knowing my name or if people in Lake would know my name, I'm doing this work. Again, like I mentioned, this is, I'm finishing my 22nd year. I started in August of 2001 when I was going to social work school to get my MSW at Wurzweiler School of Social Work, and I was doing my internship as a case manager in Chai Lifeline. But really, I really come on the heels of my family growing up in a family. Anybody that knows the Freed family, my parents know that it's a family that's legendary for the chesed they do. We grew up 10 siblings in a three-bedroom apartment on 9th Street in Lakewood, and there was never a Shabbos or a Yantiv that there weren't guests. There was always room for someone else. If you know my family, it's steeped in chesed. And that really inspired me when I realized when I was building my family, when I needed to make a parnasa to get involved with chesed and try to have a parnasa kalanikia, so to speak, within the world of chesed. My father um, inspired me that I should become a professional. There weren't many males with an MSW in those years. 22 years ago, let alone someone from with a Hasidish Lakewood background. There was no one really going to social work school at the time. And my father inspired me to go ahead and get a degree. And my involvement in Chai Lifeline was really twofold. I was a big brother for a boy in Lakewood that lived not far from my house who had a kidney transplant and was really was battling illness from when he was born. 
And he attended Camp Simcha and didn't stop talking about what impact High Lifeline and Camp Simcha has had on him. And that really inspired me to get involved with High Lifeline. At the time, Rabbi Gabioff was the regional director for the New Jersey region of High Lifeline and was looking to hire another case manager. And I was going to social work school. So that should have happened. And the rest, as they say, is history. Wow. Wow. That's so nice. And yes, I could attest to your family as being like tremendous valet chasadim. My daughter, like I mentioned before, your sister is my daughter's principal, and she talks about like that house. Like in town, it's not so difficult to just go to your principal's house, but it's typical of your sister. And she's gone to that house, and she's like, I need to have a house like that. It's just an open house, people coming, people going. Everything is good. Everything is fine. And it's very, very inspirational. Okay. I, I guess like, let's start with, with when a child is sick. Like, what do you say? What do you say to a mother, a father, a, a sibling that they know that the child is dying? Like, there's always that, like, you know, yes, as long as they're alive, there's hope. But let's be realistic. Like, according to all Teva, they are dying. There is, there are no right words, as you know, to say. I always say, you know, people always ask me, when you go to a family, you're doing this for so many years, and you meet a family with a new diagnosis, what are the right words to say? And if they're doing this for all these years, I always say the only words that could be said is, you know, I can't imagine what this must be like for you to ever minimize it by comparing or to ever minimize it by saying, I know what it's like. It's just, it's just hurtful. It's never the right words. It's always when a person is going through their matzah, their child, and their child was just diagnosed, there's nothing like that in the world. No one has ever experienced that. I say it, you know, sadly in loss, you know, in loss as well people could compare or even another parent that lost a child but no one lost their child no one lost my maishi my rifki and that's a loss that's unimaginable and there is nothing to compare it to and that hakara that understanding that it's something that no one can imagine is the only thing that could be said now the question you asked is in terms of when a child is actually dying, is there something for me to say? The last thing you ever do is give false hope. The last thing you ever say is it's going to be okay. The only thing that you could do is be there with them in their tsar, be there with them as opposed to trying to correct it. As a, I remember I once had a father that once told me, he said, you know, people try to explain my pain. He said, you know, to have a child with cancer or a serious illness or a child that has a terminal illness is the biggest question in the world. It's the biggest kasha in the world. There is no explanation. We, we can't live in a world where a child that's like Tom, Tom, hate that never did anything wrong in their life should be in such pain and suffering and dealing with a terminal illness. We, we can't understand it. For someone to try to explain it, he's trying to give a terrace, an answer to a question. That means my question is not so deep. That means my question is not so hard. That's hurtful. And there's nothing that's more hurtful than try to give an answer to the toughest question in the world. The only thing that I could find helpful, he told me, is that within that question, within that pain, to find some sort of meaning, to find some sort of light. So can you help a parent 
even during times of terminal illness, that gives them chizuk, you can. And that's to find meaning in the here and now and being able to identify for them and help them living with their child, finding purpose and meaning within the day versus trying to tell them, I understand what it's like or why it's happening or it's going to be okay. or giving them false hope. Hope is not, it's not a winner-take-all system that we live in, Mrs. Ribiat. And I tell this to Mechanchem when it comes to Tehillim. They're like, you know, we say Tehillim, we say Tehillim, but, you know, what are we going to tell? We know the outcome is a terminal illness, and how are we going to deal with that, right? And I always tell them that Tehillim is, it's not just a winner-take-all system, which is, of course, we daven for Ruh and of course, we daven for a complete recovery, but we daven for the here and now, that the family should have a meaningful moment with their child today, that there should be less pain, that they should have access to visit. There's so many things that we live in within the moments of every day that we can find meaning, hope, and within the greatest tsar to find simcha as well. And to find happiness within that, that's what you're trying to do with the family during those times. Wow. Oh, my gosh. I have so many things to say. <laughs> I want to first tell you that I got a call this morning from a, oh, sorry, I actually know her. I haven't spoken to her in many years, but her sister-in-law was Nifter, a young mother. That was Nifter suddenly. And she was asking me, so what could I do for them? What could I do for them? And I said to her, you know, it's our nature to want to fix. We can't fix it. If you want them to move on or whatever the word is, like you have to let them go through it. They have to feel the pain. They have to cry. They have to scream. They have to yell. They have to do whatever they have to do. Don't try to take that away from them. So I think what you just said is, is you know, similar. Like be there in the pain. Don't try to fix it. You can't fix it. Just let them feel the support that, you know, that you're really there with them. It's... You know, there's a lot to talk about, but, you know, I always say that the greatest chesed we know as Yidin, we try to do, is the concept of mahu havata, that we try to, we try to emulate Hashem's ways. Hashem is the ultimate racham v'chanan. Mahu, just like Hashem is the racham v'chanan, we should also be. And we should be with people in during difficult times and during pain and suffering. The greatest suffering that Klal Yisrael is experiencing is the, is the gullus that we're in for thousands of years. And it says the greatest support HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives us is Shechinta Begilusa, that Hashem is with us in the gullus. He's not correct. We're still in it. He's not making it go away. We daven and we hope for Mashiach to come today. But Shechinta Begalusa is support. He's just with us, not correcting it. And correcting it at times, Mrs. Ribiat, is about us, not about the person in pain. We don't feel comfortable being in a place of pain with another. So we feel we need to do something about it. A mother who loses a child and hasn't spoken to many people but you lose a sibling or a parent and you finally pick up a phone to a close friend and you pour your heart out 
And after 20 minutes of you talking, your friend says, you know, Miriam, let, let's go for coffee. Let's go out. And you're like, what? I, I didn't ask for coffee. I didn't ask to go out. Just listen. And they're well-meaning, but we tend to feel that we need to correct it. And we need to do something about it. And my wife once shared something very powerful with me when we were discussing this, the concept of just being with a person in silence. She says, you know, when you speak to a person... You see a client and you're speaking to any person in Sar and they start crying and there's a box of tissues on the little chair on the desk between you two and you move over the tissues to them, then it's about you, not about them. They saw, they saw the tissues are there, but you couldn't just cry with them because that was uncomfortable. So you needed to do something, to do chesed with them. That's not what the moment called for. Let the moment be. Wow. So your tears aren't dried up yet? You must be crying with so many people. (laughs) It's a great question. The answer to that is, as I say all the time, the day my tears dry up is the day I hang up my skates. You can't do this work. This is not clinical social work where you have to be removed. This is crisis, grief, trauma, pain of a parent. If you don't care, if you don't have a heart, you can't do this work. It's about feeling another Yitzhar. And that's really, really the only way to do it. You have to, enough mid-feeling, you have to be able to feel appearance and be there with appearance Tsar. It's not work that, and clinical social work is incredibly important. It heals and helps thousands of thousands of lives. But this is uniquely different. And it's something that if you don't have the heart, you don't put your heart into it, you can't be helpful. Does it hurt? Of course it hurts. If it doesn't hurt, you don't have a heart. Do you get out from the work? Absolutely. And that's okay. And that means you need to take a time off. That means you have a family. And that's okay. That shows that you care. If you didn't, then you've just become immune to the work that you do. I do want to go back to a point that the, that you brought up a bit, which is the point of just being there in the siren. And you write about it also. I was reading a little bit, you know, excerpts from your books, and you write about it. I think, and again, Claudia Sol is so good. Claudia Sol has such achmanim, you know, gimli chasadim. It's incredible. You see. In the work that I see, the greatest source of chizik you can get, really the two greatest source of chizik you can get, that I always say is the resilience you see in humanity, and especially in Yidden and in parents during the most difficult times, and then the support that Klal Yisrael shows is just incredible. But Baruch Hashem, you know, in today's world where... It's not like it used to be, Mrs. Rivia. Before the, you know, a hundred years ago, before the war, it was in bias Every family had children that passed away. Death was part of life. Today, Baruch Hashem, with the incredible advancement of medicine and quality of life, life expectancy in the United States is you know. Like it's never been before, and people don't deal with death, and they don't know, and people don't deal with, 
you know, every death is tragic. Is there's no comparing, but people don't deal with traumatic deaths, with deaths of young children, of a young parent. People go through life and Baruch Hashem don't have to deal with it, so they're not malumit. They don't know what to do, right? At times, and Hashem should help that it should only continue that way, right? So, and it's very hard to to train people, you know. For situations that nobody wants to think about, right? We can talk to people how to deal with friends in class and not to bully and how to help someone in time of need, but start training people how to do a shiva call. Like, I don't want to live in that world, right? I want to. I don't want to live in that world. We definitely try. We have a lot of publications about correct, it. Correct, correct. Who you wants do. to read it other than those that are going through it? <laughs> correct, correct, correct. But I think that what you've accomplished is that people... A, that you put into words so much of what we've thought about and spoken about over the years, and the people that go through it have the ability to share that with others. You know, it's a lot of times you're putting people in difficult situations as if the Otis is on them to tell people how to how to treat them, you know? So right. you, you put stuff out there that, you know, especially for teenagers that you wrote about, you know, with friends that people can read. So people hear about somebody, you don't have to, there, there's information out there, which is tremendous. I was going to ask you, I wasn't sure if you knew about the books. I wish someone would have told me for teens and I wish someone would yes, have told my Yes, I read about it. You know, Chavar Lam Mishnah, it's interesting. I, I, I don't know if he's still involved. but I Rabbi Hakens, you mean? Yes, he was in yeah. the office in the, he was one of his first visits he came when he opened this, I don't know how many, maybe it's already 10 years. I'm not sure. Maybe more. I don't remember when it was. He was in my office on Clifton Avenue. I'll never forget. He came to show me what he was going to do. And I was very inspired at the time. But I, I never years. thought it would, evo- it would evolve to this point. Uh, so it gives me a lot of chizik to see that I'm on a podcast today. Someone that when it started in its infancy, they came to my office to discuss the concept. So but going back to that point, I think the greatest challenge, if you ask me the greatest challenge that you've seen during Shiva and when people have lost a loved one, what's the greatest challenge and what's the number one thing you would tell people? And, and I think it's, a, it's as follows. People think that the greatest chizik they can give is by explaining the their pain away right by giving a story a well-meaning story a well-meaning you know saying over a chazal that they feel could be applicable right where somehow or another the subtle message goes as follows mr Biet. the message is that if you really knew and understood why your child passed away or why your sibling or why your parent passed away at a young age, you wouldn't be in pain if you understood it, if you believed it, if you only did, heard this story of this goggle at that time. So we try to share stories and different things to explain it away. The only thing that we know is that what you're supposed to do by Shiva is cry. I once heard a father, a father said something so powerful to me. He said, you know, it says by HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Kasa misasen shal tzaddikim HaKadosh Baruch Hu kasreifas beis The misa, the death of tzaddikim, is hard. 
is hard for HaKadosh Baruch Hu because basically came you know, like when the Beis Amikdash was destroyed. What does that mean? All I heard from Shiva was the reason why it's hard for me, this father tells me, is because I don't fully grasp why my son was taken away from me tragically by having a brain tumor at the age of three. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu, there was no greater tzaddik in this world than my son, did no aver in the world. And no one knows why it happened to my son and why it happened to me and my wife and to my other children more than HaKadosh Baruch Hu, right? But it's hard for Hashem. And Hashem is crying. That means all we should be doing is crying. So just give me permission to cry and cry with me. Don't try to make it easier for me. It's not easy. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. There's a famous, if I can share, if I can share one a famous story. I've shared it all the time. And I don't know if anyone shared it on this podcast. And if yes, please stop me. Um Shmuel Bear for his son. And that was Nifter tragically. He lost two sons, I think, right? Could be. I don't I don't recall. But by the ship of his son, could be he lost two sons. Maybe you're right. He said as follows. He says that Yitzchak became blind in his older years. Older years, it says, because the Malachim, when they saw the Akedah, the Malachim were crying and their tears fell down into Yitzchak's eyes. And later on in life, when he became older, Yitzchak became blind from that. Mm-hmm. And the Lushen that Rashi uses is Niftuchu HaShemayim. That the heavens opened, and through that, the Malachim were able to see that Yitzchak is going to be killed on the Akedah. And Rav Bramias, what do you mean? A Malach, an angel, Israel, he can see from one end of the world to the next. What does it mean that Hashem had to open the heavens in order for the angels to see that Yitzchak is going to the Akedah? Said Rav there's two ways how to look at the world. There's a way how to look at the world with heavenly eyes. Yiddish, you say, where everything makes sense, where the pain of su- and suffering of little children makes sense, where a child that loses a parent at a young age makes sense, where a sibling that loses a sibling makes sense, where everything makes sense. HaKadosh Baruch Hu told the Malachim, when a Jewish child is going from this world, don't look at the world with heavenly eyes. At such a time, you look at the world, as they say in Yiddish, where nothing makes sense. Where Yitzchak going to the Akeda just doesn't add up. And therefore we cry. Move your heavenly eyes away for now. A Jewish child is in pain and is going to die. We cry. That's what Rav Shmuel Birmam said. His message was, enough with the stories and explanations. At such a time, all we do is cry. We don't look at the world at such a time where everything makes sense. So I always have this question, you know, like Rav Shmuel Birmam was sitting Shiva and he said, now is the time to cry. But if he got up after Shiva or even after Shloshim, I'm sure he continued to cry. And yet the Torah says for seven days. So I don't know. I know the Torah lets us cry. Mrs. Ribiat, Mrs. Ribiat, they've been asked this question numerous times. Okay. 
there's no greater authority that we know than the Hilagir Rambam. And the Rambam talks about the halachas of Shiva, of Shiva, Shleishim, a year. Then the Rambam writes about his own experience with death when his brother died tragically when he was out at sea. And the Rambam writes that it's eight years later. And you just have to read the Rambam. The Rambam's son brings it down. That it's eight years later and he says he simply can't move on. Thank you. And then the Rambam writes how for a year, I, I can't even describe it on this podcast. It's incumbent upon everybody to see it themselves. But it's one that I've shared with parents. Initially, I got it from a parent that lost a child. And I've shared it numerous times afterwards. Adoramam describes how for a year he couldn't, he simply couldn't get his daily routine back. And how it's eight years later. Um, of course, there's halachas. Halachas don't mean, and again, everybody should discuss it with Verav, but that doesn't mean that we, we're not in pain and we're not suffering and we don't cry. And the whole concept of the wording that we tell people moving on, no one moves on. You never move on of the death of a parent, of a child, of a sibling. The acute pain gets less with time. But you don't move on. There's not a day that goes by that you don't think of your beloved. I once heard from our president, Joe Biden, I once heard a speech he gave to, it's on, you, you can see it, it's actually excellent, that he gave to military wives who've lost their husbands in combat. He had prepared remarks and he totally ripped up his remarks and spoke off the cuff and spoke very personal about his own grief. You know, he lost two children, he lost a, a wife. And he said something very profound and something that I share all the time. He says, right now, it doesn't feel like you can get through the day. You will never move on. This pain, this acute pain that you're feeling now will get less with time. And there will be a day and that day will come. It's hard to imagine now, but that day will come. We're speaking about your loved ones will bring more smiles to your face than tears to your eyes. But that day will come. Wow. And, you know, speaking from a person that lost two children and a spouse, I think it's whatever your opinions are in politics, <laughs> you can accept that as just a genuinely humane and very insightful thing that he said. I think also what's a very important point to like to say over here for those that like aren't hearing it the way I'm hearing it is that the parents want to talk about their children. Don't don't pretend their children didn't exist. You know, like saying like, oh, I found your child. I made his favorite recipe of cake, whatever it is. I made Chaim's favorite cake. And I was thinking of you, like most parents will appreciate those reminders and those those like, uh, hey. No, no question. In my early years, I used to lead a group at the Chai Lifeline Bereavement Shabbaton for parents that lost children up in Camp Simcha. I used to lead a group for parents. I've done it numerous times. And the one thing I've always heard from them over the years was that the most powerful thing of the Shabbaton was that here they can live with their children without making other people feel uncomfortable. How many times on a Shabbos where other people are coming by and coming over to the house and they're looking at albums, 
when they get to my child, my son, my daughter, they'll skip over that page because they're afraid, not knowing what to say. It like it, it stabs them in the back or seeing them in the supermarket and they walk the other way. And I think people are well-meaning, but I think people ask me, but what should we do? I think I think it's really going back to what we started out with, which is because you feel a need to correct, because you feel a need to say something, therefore you're avoiding because you, you don't know what to say. But if you're willing to accept that you don't need to say anything. And you don't need to correct anything. Just be there with them. Then you can be there with them. And if it means that they are showing pictures of Chaim, then you look at that picture and say, Chaim looks so cute here. You know, everybody wants to share. And they're living with their children and their loved ones. I'll never forget. It really goes to the power of, you know, I always say everybody, we, you know this, you've heard it numerous times on this podcast that, you know, everybody grieves differently, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But cultural is so important at the same time. I'll never forget, just remind me of an incredible story. I was at one of these Shabbatones, at these bereavement Shabbatones for parents that lost children. And there was a Hasidish couple there that I knew. I knew this father and mother from when the child was sick. And, you know, he felt a bit uncomfortable coming up for Shabbos. And he told me, it's not really for me. This is not how I cope. This is not how I don't, I don't talk about it. I don't go to groups. I'm not going to be emotional. I learned Lily Nishmas, my daughter, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I came for three reasons, he tells me. He says, I came for my wife. I came to be Mechazic other parents. And I came because my life did so much for my family. And they asked me to come up. So I'm doing a Tevet to lifeline for coming. I said, okay. I listened. I said, okay. And, you know, I said, hopefully you can make the most out of the Shabbos. Fine. Friday night, after the meal, all you see mothers sitting around. They all bring up albums and they're all sharing pictures, you know, etc. Sunday, 12 o'clock, after they did a Kelmali Rachman for all the children and they did the last group and they're getting ready to leave. As he gets into the car, he looks, he calls me over and says, really, you know, I have a tape here of the hesped that I gave for my daughter by her levaya. Listen to it. You know, listen to it. I think there's so many things I said about her. I think it was incredibly powerful. Here, can I share it with you? And I said, sure, of course I'll listen to it. And I thanked him. And it dawned on me. It dawned on me at that moment. This tape to this father is the same as the album's that the mothers bring up. It was just for him culturally, just a different way how to express himself. But this was the one place that he felt comfortable a year later to say, listen to the hesped I gave to my daughter. Right, right. Wow. I want to ask you something, going back to something. I know we don't have so much time left, but I just point that you made all the way in the beginning. I don't know if this is something that you saw a lot, but it was my personal experience. I guess that's why I feel like we can't end before we talk about it. You said about when the Rebbeim asked you about the Tehillim and what are they supposed to say when they know the child's dying? And you were saying how, you know, one of the things to them for is that the parents should have a meaningful moments with their child. Mm-hmm. So when my sister was very sick, she had incredible friends that were there with her, like Mamish, like they really, really were there for her a lot. At the very, very end, she was in a hospital. She was dying. 
my father had just died and my mother said something to me like, I, I really would like some time alone with her. And she felt uncomfortable asking her friends simply because they really were amazing and they did so much. I said something to the friends and they went out and they almost seemed like a little bit like annoyed, but they went out of the room for like 10 seconds or maybe five minutes. And then they came back in and I was annoyed at them. I was like a mother that just lost her husband. That's losing a second child. Just give her the hour or whatever it is. As good friends as you are, like know that now it's family time. So I don't know. I guess I was just, when you said that, it brought that up. And I'm wondering if that's something that you experienced a lot that you heard a lot of people experience. If you're bringing up, you know, those last moments in those last weeks, there's so much to talk about. There's really so much to talk about. And there's a lot of things that I have thoughts now and I want to share. But again, call you so there's nothing like it out there in terms of and what they do and the support system that they have. There are no words, right? Right. But people think that what needs to happen, both for the survivors, so to speak, for siblings of someone that's passing away, and both for the person that's being nifted, that sadly is dying, is, again, to change that reality. It's to say, okay, how are we going to create the greatest moments of joy here? We're going to bring in singers. We're going to create simcha. We're going to create klumzitzen. We're going to talk about funny things. And we're going to do all that, you know. And there is a place for that. There is a place when someone is down to create joy. It can add days to their life. There's no question. But at the same time, and you write about it, when you spoke to your mother about her fear of death, right? Can you imagine a person, you know, their last weeks of their life and everybody around them is talking about one thing and their mind is thinking something totally else and they just don't have the opportunity to be there in their thoughts with the people they love most because we're trained not to go there and we're trained to say you know, not we're trained. That's how we think. And that's how we feel like, okay, don't go there. Don't talk about it. Don't talk that way about your fear of death, right? So when someone starts talking that way, right, we say, no, no, don't say that. Don't think you're going to be okay. Don't go there, right? Let's sing now. But they don't have the strength to fight with you. All they want is to have meaningful conversations. And someone should be there with that. And when someone's afraid of dying is to say, is explore it. And validate it and be there with them, right? Same thing is for children or siblings of a dying sibling. They want to have meaningful conversations. The same thing is with children for a parent, a young parent, right? I'm never one that sits there and says, you know, you say goodbye, but rather to create moments where you can allow there to be meaningful moments at such a difficult and challenging time, right? But we at times don't allow ourselves to go there. And we feel that we need to change and don't be negative. And going there is being negative, but not realizing that even for the nifter, you're creating meaningful moments for them at this point. For children, they can look back, right? That at such a time, you know, they had those moments, right, with them, right? Recently, I was dealing with a young mother that sadly was in the last weeks of her life. And 
um, again, there were a lot of people there and everybody trying to help out and people that were busy saying, we have to come in and save Vidui, et cetera, et cetera. And it was on a Friday afternoon and, you know, the mother usually prepares Shabbos party for them or prepares something for Shabbos. And I was able to create an environment for that mother in the last moments of life where she can spend with her children in some of the things that she's done over the years that are so loving. It was important to her. It was important to the children that they'll have a memory at such a time, right? But we don't allow such moments to happen. I'll never forget. I was once dealing with a young father who sadly had a massive heart attack and he ended up in a coma and he had days to live and the kids came by to visit and it was 5.30 or 6 o'clock at night and everybody was, you know, people started singing and other people said, let's do this. And I realized at that time it's 6 o'clock and his what his child usually does with his father at such a time is learn with his father, does homework. So I was quickly able to find on someone's iPad, you know, the Gemara that the kid's learning. And I brought it up and I said, I told the kid and I said, Maishi, why don't you learn with Tati now? And the kid just got up and just started, you know, saying over the Mishnah, but that's a memory this child will have forever, you know? And we have to be able to foster such moments at such a time, not try to say the way we're all going to challenge this is going to be just with Simcha, allow people and those that are dying to share those intimate feelings that they have with those that they love most. Go there. Don't be afraid to it's go. It's even there. okay to say, I think, right? Is it okay to say, you know, I'm really going to miss you because I'm going to miss, I don't know, going to the store myself. I'm going to miss that we can't take vacation together. I'm going to. Sure. Whatever. That's usually with an older child, not with a young child. But of course, and then to reminisce about life and how meaningful what an impact, Mama, you had on my life. And I remember those days. And you laugh and you cry together and you allow them to relive it, right? They're thinking about these things. That's what they're thinking about. Don't make them feel that at their hardest moments in their life, they're all alone. Because you decided to do a cumsits now. <laughs> Again, I'm not, there is a place for that. There is a place of a person sad and music has an incredible power to uplift a person and can add days to their life. But we have to not be afraid to go where they're at at right. such a time. Right, right. Oh, my gosh, this is so heavy. Any lighter messages that we should end off with? <laughs> I think that I'll finish off with a somewhat lighter message. This is Ribian. I'll share a story with you. I can use his name because he's a close friend of mine. And I think he would be okay with it. I have a close friend by the name of Yosef Ariestein, Stark. He lost his beloved son, Hudi Tre, brain tumor. And a year later, they made Achnasa Sefer Teira, right? For his son. And there was dancing and there was singing and there was good food and, you know, life. And he got up to speak, right? And like it's the dichotomy, the dichotomy of of life, right? And like what's going on here? I'm in a year of the Petir and my son. We're singing and we're dancing. And he said something very, very powerful. He says, as Yidin in Eretz Yisrael, we get up from Yisker. On Simchas Taira, and we dance with the Sefer Taira. As Yidin, we have the capacity 
to be besimcha and betzar at the same time. It's yeah. who we are. It's who we are as a people. Yeah. And at times we don't allow ourselves to be besimcha because we feel it takes away from the pain and it takes away from our grief and our relationship and our connection. And it's not a stira. It's not a stira. Rav Schwab says, you know, it says, the, the Malachim said, had a taina, how can Klal Yisrael dance by Shira Sayam? There's such death and there's such destruction. How can that be? So what's the answer, says Rav Schwab? Rav Schwab says, because a Malach can only feel, will have one mission. A human, and especially a Yid, can be Bitsar and Besimcha at the same time. It's who we are as people. It's who we are as humans. And I think at times, to give that parallel message to what we've been speaking about, yes, the Aveda is to be Bitsar. And we cry, and that's what we do at times like that. And we, as those of us that support people, should give them the permission to cry. But those of us that are in pain and suffering need to know that being besimcha and enjoying life and enjoying our children and enjoying and having simcha sachayim and Yiddishkeit and everything else that we do is not a steer to pain and suffering and grief. And that doesn't mean we don't care about our beloved. And it doesn't mean we're losing our connection. We have the capacity to be bizarre and in pain and cry and smile at the same time and have joy in our lives at the same time. Wow. Okay. That's beautiful. And there should be only simcha. We should have Mashiach and no more suffering, right? Amen. We should only join in simcha together. And I think that the only other bracha that I could give is that until that day that Mashiach comes, when there will be no suffering in the world, we should have the capacity and siyata deshmaya to help people during their most challenging times. Yes, Amen. Thank you so, so much. Thank you so much. And we should only join for simple. Thank you for the opportunity, Mrs. Ribiat. Thank you. Hatzlacha. You have just listened to an episode by Mrs. Miriam Ribiet. For more episodes or for additional information about future episodes, visit our website at www.chevralomdemishnah.org or email mribiet at chevralomdemishnah.org. To submit questions or comments for this speaker, to suggest another speaker who might be Mechazic Others, or to sponsor a podcast, visit chevralomdemishnah.org forward slash podcast.